Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, Sunday evening. As I said before, I'm going to try to knock off two today. Uh, and do a bio of a very unusual um, sort, uh, story behind everything. Uh, but today's, tonight's uh, podcast is being sponsored uh, by Yehuda Tannen, a student of mine from not long ago, in memory of a, his close friend, uh, Gabi Rosenblum, uh, who had a terrible car accident last year and was killed on... Um, Chalmay Sukkos, uh, just a terrible business. Um, I think it really speaks well for Yehuda, who's in Landers, you know, still in college. He's a young guy. We were all in high school not long ago. Then he wanted to sponsor something in Gavi's memory. Um, and Gavi had really a, a close friend, t- tight friends. And there's an example. And uh, I myself used to learn with me on Friday night, uh, Gavi. And... Uh, it's, uh, it's a painful memory, that's it. But, um, as they say in the Sham Shabbat as I said before, it's re- I'm very impressed that a young man um, this in college should have this uh, sensibility to want to sponsor this on behalf in memory of a, of a much-missed uh, classmate. Um, the extent to the family of sympathies. Meet <sighs> Gisa. I got this, um, there's a guy in Australia who's been pestering me, in a good way, uh, to do a famous Australian Jew you never heard of, unless you're from Australia. And even sent me a thing today with himself standing next to the cover of um, General Monash. It's the 90th of Yard Site, something like that. This is somebody you never heard of. Again, unless you're in Australia. Uh, which most of us are not. And I don't know. I was, I was going to tell him to jump in a lake. But, you know, I thought about it over the course of the day and said, what the heck? I'm going to be talking about somebody today who's completely not from. But yet. However. But. And as always, I'm trying to give a, a Jewish spin. And perhaps a little bit of a from spin on... Somebody I can honestly say, without being funny about it, is the most famous Jewish general you never heard of. Again, unless you live in Australia. Uh, it's interesting. This is uh, John Monash, who was a, became a famous... It was a Jewish guy, he just became a famous general in the First World War. He wasn't a soldier, necessarily. Uh... So this is somebody living in, born in the 1860s in Australia, in Melbourne. Uh, the guy who wrote me today is from Melbourne. So I have his local pride. <laughs> he went to the cemetery. Although General Monash is not buried in a Jewish cemetery. At least not that I, I don't live over there. Uh, I know the cemetery is not a Jewish cemetery, but they obviously have a Jewish section. And he has a picture of him standing next to the graves. Well, let's get, let's get down to business. We're talking about somebody 
He was not a famous Godot. It wasn't a from Jew. And wasn't a Torah scholar. And wasn't a big Balabas and Montefiore and all the rest of it. Yes, that's correct. And I would even go so far as to say, and this is the reason I was intrigued enough to talk about it tonight, like many Jews from a hundred and some years ago, he was to a certain degree ashamed of his Jewish background, but on the other hand, not. And I think the most interesting part for me, aside from the military history side, is the fact that he had a transformation between the first half of his life and the second. As I understand it, and I can only tell you the way I understand it, in the first half of his life, he was kind of like avoiding Jewish stuff. And the second half of his life, he came to embrace it. That That's an interesting story. And he did so at the height of his fame, he, instead of the other way around. Usually, with the non-from, the higher they get in fame, the less they touch on the Yiddish guy. Here, it's the other way around. Now, we're dealing with Australia. I've never been there. I'd like to see Australia, but I've never been there. Uh, I only know a little bit about it. More than most non-Australians, but less than Australians, I imagine. And make a long story short, our hero was born in the 1860s, around the time of the Civil War, the American Civil War, uh, in Melbourne. And uh, his parents are immigrants. His parents were German Jews, but what you call Prussian Jews. So East Prussia is really, the Jews there are really Polish from way back when, but they Germanized when they were taken over by Prussia. And his father was a relative of Gretz. His grandfather was a Tamil Chacham. Uh, now, it so happens that there, because he's a famous Australian national hero, there are books and articles and all this kind of junk on General Monash, because he was a big general, as you shall see. But they don't, but these are usually by Goyim. They don't know the Jewish side. There's only, it's really funny, there's a, a website or something that came across a number of years ago, very charming, from Rabbi Apple. It was a rabbi, uh, retired now, I think, in um, in uh, Australia. And I was <laughs> very chatty in the British kind of way. And he had a thing on Monash from the Jewish point of view, which is the part that interested me. Plus a few other things I put together. So here we go. Here we have a guy that's born in Melbourne in the 1860s. Um, there was... Not much Yiddishkeit there, but this is part of the British Empire. So listen closely, I'm about to tell you. Reform Judaism did not exist. Instead, what you had was very left-wing modern Orthodox Judaism of the United Synagogue variety, like in England, once upon a time. So, it's actually good, because a guy like Monash, had there been Reform Judaism, would have jumped in it with both feet. Just he didn't have the good mazel to be in a country we had to reform, and so all you had was the Orthodox. Um, Melbourne's had a Jewish community, and this is a from community with a base and all the rest of it. However, a Shvach or whatever, since, I don't know, the 1850s or whatever, you know, a long time, part of the British Empire, formerly under the, formerly under the chief rabbi of London. Um, but whatever the case is, if you're Jewish and you're in a place like Melbourne, all you have is the Orthodox. So he grew up, he's a member of the Jewish community, but his parents had very little to do with the Yishkite, and he had less. But he had a bar mitzvah, you know, he did. And I said somewhere he sang in the Shul Choir or whatever. But one thing is clear, and this is very typical. If he's born in the 1860s, he's growing up in the late 1870s, 1880s. That is the peak years, Mom is the peak years 
when people of his type left Yiddishkeit. We're no longer interested in practicing Judaism. Uh, this is the peak years of reform, like in a country like America. They just didn't have it over there. And the reform appealed precisely to these guys because they got rid of all the Jewish stuff and just had the external fluff. And that's what these guys were looking for because they really, really, really wanted a Jewish religion that would resemble the Protestant, you know, but it wasn't available. And so, instead, here you have a guy who grows up, he's very bright, went to college, did all that stuff, became engineer. And he had a career as a civil engineer. He built up a company, you know, that was his career. Let me say this, he married a Jewish girl, that's good, right? His first wife and second wife were Jewish, that's a Madrega. I'm sorry to have to use this language. And, you know, his kids are Jewish, of course. And, um, but, you know, he didn't even go to Shul Yom Kippur. I remember Rabbi Apple said that. So just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. person who doesn't go to Shulim Yom Kippur is like making a statement. You get it? You know, because at least once a year, especially in those days, you don't even go for Yisker, you know what I mean? Making a statement. Okay, so, in this so far, he's not different than a lot of other Jews. Australia, England, America, elsewhere, in which once you rise to middle class, you drop the orthodoxy. Or you'd like to. And if you can't, because there's no alternative, as was the case, for example, usually in England or in the colonies like Australia, so then you simply didn't have much to do with Judaism whatsoever. But he never denied he was Jewish, never converted to another religion. So he's a non-practicing Jew. And he had this career in the 1890s and early 1900s as engineer. Now, engineer trains you in a certain way. The planning, the precision, the, the, the tactics, the strategy. He also liked the military life. Now, not everybody's like that. In those societies in those days, if you joined the military as an officer, you got a lot of prestige in the society just from that alone. And very Jewish to show how assimilated you are, you know, how, how patriotic and loyal you are, I know a lot of a lot of English Jews, Gibraltar, also they joined the, you know the what we would call today the National Guard in the United States. There they called it the militia. In England they called it something else, the territorials. What we would call you know the reserves. Now you have to understand Australia is the end of the world from the perspective of us. They had no army, meaning a very very tiny one. Who are they fighting? Nobody, and so. By the way, America was the same way. And so the military was a very small professional group with an officer corps, and the regular military was tiny. And basically relying on the reserves in case, in case, in case there's ever a war. Now, in the case of Australia, you have to understand, for those who are not from there, um, that 100 years ago, they said, I guess, here we are in, in, in Asia. It's surrounded by all these Chinese types. These Asiatic types all look the same to them. It's a white man's territory. That's the way we want it. We don't want any non-white men in this country. That's what it was. Um, and they had a policy, only white people can, can move to Australia. In fact, if it's up to them, only British. And they have a whole continent to play with. Even though Australia is giant and you only live in a small part of the continent. But that's the way it went, you know. And the result is that 
they had, uh, how should I put it, uh, a feeling of being far away from the center of things, which is England. So in those days, I'm talking about 1900 around that time, Queen Victoria and King Edward, King George V, those years, there really was a Zach called the British Empire, which they really tried to make everybody, including the Jews, feel it's an unbelievable privilege to be in the British Empire. And they glorified it. This has been going on for a long time. This really played a big role in this, by the way. But I would say that there's a reason. If you look at the map, if we go back to before the First World War, it's unbelievable how much territory belonged to the British Empire. What a percentage of planet Earth belonged to the British in one form or another. After all, England is just a little island. Not tiny, but, you know, it's, a, it's an island. So how big should they be? And yet, if we look around the world, let's say 1900 or so, 1910, when Monash was growing up, right off the bat, besides England and Ireland, you know, they ruled Ireland, besides that, you got all this territory. And I don't only mean little colonies which they had all over the place, like say, Gibraltar and uh, Cyprus at that time and Malta and this and that and the other. But you had the India... The Ganza India, which means India plus Pakistan plus Burma plus Malaya down to Singapore. That's huge. I'm not finished. Then they had the whole Ganza Australia. It's a, sub, it's a whole continent by itself. Plus New Zealand, which is a thousand miles away. Then, of course, they had South Africa. You know, there was a fight. That's called the Boer War, but the British won. So they have South Africa. I'm already talking about whole chunks which are much bigger than England than Great Britain, let's put it that way, uh, Canada. You see what I'm saying? So just the white man commonwealth, Canada, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, was huge compared to the, you know, the fact that it's only a small country. And then they chopped up Africa during those years. So Britain got a big chalic of Africa. You know, those different colonies there and all the rest of it. At the time I'm talking about the British ruled one way or the other, what you and I today call Egypt, Sudan, um, Uganda, uh, I don't know where, Kenya. This is why when Theodore Herzl was around, I think it was in 1904, the British colonial secretary, uh, the father of Neville Chamberlain, said to me, he said, you need a country for the Jews? I'll give you Kenya, or Uganda, as they called it. That in other words, England had so much territory, it was ridiculous. You see? And the... And like we say today, I have karka despair. <laughs> you need a place for the Jews? And by the way, let's say for argument's sake that Uganda or Kenya had been empty. I'm just making this up, of course. So you weren't displacing anybody. From the British point of view, so all the Jews have moved here. They'll become a big Jewish area. They'll be part of the British Commonwealth. So what? Right? You know what I mean? No, that's good. You can trust the Jews more than you can trust the Arabs who are nearby. It would have been a good thing. That's how the British thought. And there's much more territory that I'm not even talking about. The British had colonies in South America and Central America, in um, the Asia, you know, in, in the Pacific Dead Islands, etc., etc. So if you looked at the map, you say, what the heck is going on? Bishlam Russia is a gigantic country. All right. China is a gigantic country. All right. You know, these other countries don't have anything near that. And so if you were British... You felt, wow, I'm a master race. Master race. 
And the, 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 the poet of this is Kipling, you know, is a master race. Now, for Jews, the best part of this is, and again, I'm going back to around 1900, all the rest of it, the British Empire was the best of them all for the Jews by far. Okay? Because wherever was the British Empire, the Jewish religion was legal and treated okay. I would say they treated well. Which is why, when the Jews ran away from Russia after the pogroms in the 1880s, they went to the United States. If Britain hadn't screwed up, even the U.S. would have been part of the British Empire. But they messed that up in the 18th century. Okay. But the Jews ran away to the United States, but they also ran away to the British Empire. As you know, the Litvaks ran away to South Africa, and many went to Australia and um, Canada and places like that. Why those places? Wherever it's the British Empire, it's okay. You understand? You have to worry about anti-Semitism. And as a matter of fact, the polyglot cosmopolitan nature of the British Empire was good for the Jews. Because the British, to run such a giant empire, had to, like the Romans, had to show respect for all the different religions. You know, if you're ruling all these Muslims, you're not going to go and mess with a mosque, you understand? You're not going to make fun of Islam. Uh, or of the Hindus, or this and the other. So all the religions are going to be treated well. And that's just interesting. So you can understand the British Jews, wherever they were throughout the empire, I think had a very honest and passionate and sincere uh, loyalty to uh, to Great Britain and, and the British Empire. So the Australian Goyim felt the same way. And the reason I'm mentioning these all and taking a minute to say so is when World War I broke out, even before when the Boer War broke out, the Australians said, we will fight for the British Army. You know? In other words, they felt if England is under attack, we're joining on England's side and fighting with our men. Now, from a certain perspective, that's crazy. You're all the way around the world. What do you care what's happening in Europe? The answer the sentiment. You understand the sentiment. I'm, I'm mentioning this because this is the key to our whole story. And so during World War I and then later in World War II, the minute Great Britain went to war against Germany, even though the British was the Europeans off, and they went to war against Germany, it's a very complicated story, but basically because the Germans invaded Belgium to knock out France, so from an Australian point of view, what do I care about that? No. If England is being attacked, if Great Britain, the UK is being attacked, Australia's in it, and New Zealand and Canada and the others. And therefore, Australia became one of the important uh, countries fighting World War One, even though the war is a million miles away. You see, in the Second World War, the Australians had to fight the Japanese. All right, the Japanese are already in the Pacific. And they were mamish threatening Australia. They would have invaded Australia, probably, if America didn't come in. But in the First World War, Japan was an ally with England. You understand? Maybe you don't know that. Japan was fighting against Germany. So then you're on Australia's side. So then Australia doesn't need to have an army to defend themselves in the Pacific. There's no there's no threat there at all. And so what they did was they raised a certain army, and what they said was, you know, we'll put this under the disposal of the British. To help you fight the war. That's where all the trouble started. Now, our hero Happened to like the military life as a side avocation. Remember, he didn't go to show. <laughs> and so during the regular time, he's a 
what do you call it, a uh, businessman, an engineer at a successful firm. And in the spare time, whatever it is, he went through what we call the reserve training, and he rose in the ranks. So the guy started, I don't know, in the late 1880s, whatever. By the time the First World War came around, the guy was like 50, which is old, and you know, for starting a, a, as a soldier. But he had, over these many, many years, what many others in Australia did not have, which is a full military training. You understand? Notice he had commanded uh, this unit, and then a, another group this size and this size, and he, you know, what knew what orders are and organization, all this other junk. So from the military perspective, he, he had a bit more experience and background than a lot of others. Therefore, when Australia went to the war, this guy, even though he was Jewish, and, you know, I'm sure all of his life he had to put up with uh, the Jewish. Um, but he was able to get be a general. Because he was like a lieutenant colonel up, up to then. Going very slowly. You know, he started as a lieutenant, then, you know, captain. And so and so many years, a major. In America, you'd say you have a career, like I say, in the National Guard, over the course of decades. So, all right, you eventually rise there. He had the mazel that after, I guess, 30 years, something like that, 25, 30 years, after all this time under his belt, a, a Taka war broke out, <laughs> okay? A real war. Now, the Australians, as I said before, had no military experience. Turns out the British didn't really either. And World War One was fought as a disaster. The British were constantly defeated. People don't know that. And the Australians were part of the defeats, which they're very bitter about out of Yomazet. Uh, nobody knew the right way to fight World War One, as opposed to World War Two, where by that time they'd learned the mistakes of before, and they did it better, both the Germans and the British. Now, the First World War, people weren't... It's hard to explain, but let me put it this way. The weapons of defense were more powerful than the weapons of offense. And that's bad, because it means you can't break through, and then you just have stalemate. Now, in the case of our hero, again, he wasn't a front guy at all. So going overseas was nothing to him. He took a brigade. It was like something like a brigadier general, which is the lowest rank of general, but something. And again, you know, some people say it's not a good idea of a Jew and his parents are born in Germany. But people say, listen, we know him. He's been in the Australian thing for a long time. And so he went to the Middle East. The British in the First World War, I don't know if you know this or not, fought the Turks. The Turks were allied with the Germans. In 1915, at the beginning of the war, they tried the famous thing, a knockout blow against Turkey, which theoretically might have won, which they landed near Istanbul, right, with the Gallipoli. And if it would have won, they would have knocked Turkey out. And it's too long to explain. I'm not going to be an armchair general over here even though it would be fun, but suffice it to say, they could have knocked out one of the four uh, central powers. It was Germany, Austria, Bulgaria, and Turkey. So if we knock out Turkey all the way in the end, that would have been very useful for ending the war earlier. But they screwed it up. It was uncoordinated. They did everything wrong. Unbelievable mistakes were made. And and therefore, the, the, the Turks were a lot tougher fighters than they imagined, and more skillful fighters than they imagined. People thought Turkey is like a backwards country and all the rest of it. 
there is some truth to that, but, um, again, there is some truth to that, but, uh, Turks are tough fighters, and, uh, they knew enough, and they had German advisors, some had to use the modern weapons, and make a long story short, they slaughtered the British, so it was a tremendous defeat, and the British made one mistake after another, so our hero was part of the Australian forces who were part of that defeat. Okay, he, he was just a brigadier general. And he, you know, of course, let's put it this way, you know, made a lot of mistakes. But he learned from the mistakes. That's the Eker report. And so his uh, division or whatever, it wasn't a division, it was a brigade, lost a lot of men. But he, being an engineer, you know what I'm saying, was a big plus. Because you, the scientific trainers said, you made a mistake, okay, fine. Next time, don't make that mistake. This was not the way it was with the other British generals. I can't tell you how stupid the British were gener generally the way they fought the First World War. They know it. And you think of the Battle of the Somme and all the rest. They just charged the trenches, got wiped out, charged again, got wiped out. Um, the generals of the British were profligate with the men. They said, okay, we'll lose 50,000 here. It's could die. We'll lose 20,000 here. It's could die. That's how they thought. Now you have to understand, England, Great Britain, is a country with a history of small casualties. If you know the British military history, they never fought with very large British armies. And when they were successful, this is just smart. The British used to find allies and mercenaries so that if you had a commander of an army of 50, 60, 70,000 men, maybe half the army was British or less, and the others were different types of allies. Uh, really, the British only had two good generals in their history. The others were boobs. Uh, who was it? The Duke of Marlborough and the Duke of Wellington. And each of these guys, without giving a long historical thing, really commanded polyglot armies. You understand? Most of their armies were allies of the British. The British were part of the army, no question about it. I'm just saying, they weren't used to large casualties for this reason. Um, not really. Then comes the First World War. I'm like, what the heck? Uh, 10,000 killed here, 20,000 killed here, 30,000 killed there. Killed. I'm talking about the wounded and the maimed. And the public got shocked. Now, it didn't sink in. So they were able to persevere for four years. 1914-1918. But it was like a deadlock. Nobody knew how to fight a war in such a way. They, first of all, you make progress, which they never did. Number two, you don't lose 50,000 men in, in, in two days. You know, they're bleeding the country dry. Both sides lost terribly numbers of men in First World War. And I'm talking about from the battle. They also lost from the trenches, but I'm talking from the battle. And really, I think it's pretty... Well, let, let me... Here's a good what if. I'm telling you too much history, but it's important. First World War was 1914 to 15, 15, 16, 16 and 17. By that time, the British and the French had screwed up so badly. They lost so many men. The moms couldn't go weiter. They didn't have the men. 
uh, they lost so many. And they weren't doing it right. And the head British generals and the head French generals, all they could say is, well, try again. This time it'll work. You think I'm being funny? General Haig, Field Marshal Haig. He said, well, try again. I tried it here. Now I'll try it there. And by the time you had to 1917, and the British switched prime ministers to Lloyd George, Lord George was totally aware. This guy Haig is just going to lose more and more men. It's not going anywhere. That's why the British and the French were desperate that the USA should come in. That's what saved their, their bacon. If America didn't come in, um, I think the Germans would definitely have won in 1917. Maybe they would have made a peace. This is a nice speculation. I don't want to carry it too far away. But they were on the ropes. You know, they were in very bad shape. And when the U.S. came into war, which was in April 1917, the French and the British, who were bleeding, bleeding, bleeding on the Western Front, which is what I'm talking about, they said to the Americans, just send the soldiers to fill in the ranks of these guys who got killed. You know, they should be in our armies. And the Americans said, we're not going to send guys in just to do a stupid thing, just kill for nothing the way you've been doing till now. We're going to make our own army. Now, when the Americans made their own army... They also made their mistakes, but not quite in the same way. So this is the politics of 1917-1918. I'm simply trying to point out that for the British and the French, it was a gigantic crisis. Okay? Now, if you're bleeding dry, you need soldiers from wherever you can find them. One of the areas that they got soldiers was Australia and New Zealand, the Anzacs. Our hero was in the Gallipoli campaign, which... which which retreated, was a complete disaster. And by 1916, they were out of there. And later in 1916, his division, he was promoted to be a, a general of a division, which is larger. And he was in France training the division. And he participated. Uh, this matters. I'm not telling you these details for nothing. Listen closely. It's a little bit different than what I usually do. So he came into early part of 1916. And for a year, he was commanding a division in all these screw-ups. No, he was part of a larger army. He's commanding Australian soldiers, an Australian division. And they attack here, they attack here, they attack there, and they get wiped out, attack Viter, get wiped out, and no progress is made. On this side is the German army dug in. This side is the British army. The British may make a small breakthrough. The Germans plug it up. The Germans go Viter. They make a breakthrough in the British. The British plug it up. And when it's all over, it's a stalemate. Everybody is where they were before, except there's 100,000 dead on both sides. If you want to have even a little idea of what I'm talking about, go watch the old movie from 1930, All Quiet on the Western Front. There's a famous cinematography. It's very accurate. You just see these guys rush and get killed, and then that guy rush and get killed. And this army gets wiped out, and that army gets wiped out. And that is how it went. I'll tell you again, nobody knew a way around it. Nobody knew a way around it. So the Australians were getting creamed. Uh, they felt, and they were right, the British just using them for cannon fodder, you know. They said, listen, we need to attack over here. We'll lose 10,000. Let's bring in some Australians, you know. They don't have enough British here. Scotsman or New Zealand. And the Australians said, we don't like this. On the other hand, they weren't in the first war, World War in a position to tell the English drop dead or something like that. In the Second World War, it, it happened. That's a whole separate story. It was Prime Minister Curtin and Winston Churchill. 
But I'm not talking about I'm talking about the First World War. But always the Prime Minister and Big Shots were coming from Australia and saying, what's happening? What's happening? And the British would try to bamboozle them. And everything's fine. But they would hear different from the soldiers and they would visit the front. And they would see the terrible conditions soldiers were in. And the British always had a sort of contemptuous attitude, after all, to the Australians. If you say today, even in America, what's the origins of Australia? is a penal colony. You see? So that's how they're thinking. They don't know. People came after that. And so the British always looked down on them like the Australians, like the barbarians. On the other hand, they needed it with the soldiers. And the Australians are good fighters. So mistakes continue to be made and made and made until 1918 comes around. By that time, the American army is beginning, beginning to show up. But the American army wants to be, for the most part, under its own general, General Pershing. And so the British are still bleeding. They don't know what to do. Here's the interesting part. The top British generals, including Haig, the necessity forced them to recognize talent when they saw it. They did not have the luxury of stomping anti-Semitic. They saw this guy, General John Monash, who was the division commander, was pretty good at what he did. Ah, he's involved in disasters. Well, that's because the army did disastrous things. But he actually looks like he knows what he's doing. And in order to quiet the Australians and make them feel more Bacovedic, so they said, you know something? We will um, agree that uh, all the Australian units will be in one big corps. So it won't be that Monash's division is part of this British army and another guy's Australian division is part of that British army. You know, we'll give the Australians an esprit de corps. We'll call it the Australian army almost. Fighting the British side. And the best guy is this Jewish guy. He can't take it away. He looks like he knows what he's doing. And we've lost so many men. And we're so desperate. We don't have the opportunity to say, well, he's Jewish. If he's good, he's good. Now, there were Australians. People that non-Australians never heard of. They said, don't get a Jew. And he's a pushy. And he's, and he's a liar. And also, you know, there's truth that, you know, Monash wanted to be famous. They told her, he boasted here and there, and he told a few lies about himself and all the rest of it. That's a, He wasn't a tzaddik, not at all. But he was very good at understanding that the war is being fought wrong, and that the generals are not scientific enough, and that as a businessman and an engineer, because they run engineering business, I have the skills that the regular generals don't have during realizing the necessity of Top flight organization is part of planning battles and running an army. The logistics, especially. So, make a long story short. In the desperate fighting of 1918, because the Germans had one last push where they almost broke through, they said, I guess, we're going to put the whole Australian army under this guy's command, this Jewish guy's command. Um, we're even going to give him 50,000 Americans. <laughs> right? Um, the Americans agreed that. And let's see what he can do. So this is in June of 1918. 
So now comes his five minutes of fame. Because the war is over on November 11th. So it's June, July, August, September, October. It's a five months. For him, the Acre of First World War was five months. When he was put in charge of this huge force, which was gigantic, I mean, I, I, I forget how many, uh, 500,000 men, I don't know, not that much, a lot. So he's like, okay, it's under me, and I'm going to make all the preparations and get out of my way. And he organized like a business. <laughs> it's almost like a Jewish joke. <laughs> you know? <laughs> when I was a kid, he used to say a story like this. It's a joke. The general of Eisenhower comes to review the division. And they said, you know, right face, soldier arms, present arms. The soldiers don't do anything right because they're new hillbillies and so forth. Only one guy was doing everything exactly right. And the general asked the colonel, and goes down the line, who is that guy? And they bring in the sergeant, he says, that's Isidore Cohn from Brooklyn, New York. How come he's doing everything right? The sergeant says, when he came in the first day, I looked at his name. I looked at him, I said, Izzy, here's your, here's your uniform, here's your rifle. Now you're in business for yourself. <laughs> you know, Jewish guy likes to be in business for himself, organize it his way. That's my much what happened over here. Even though it's worldwide events. And it's a cataclysm of nations. But the, the events so transpired that this guy was now in charge of the major offensive and he can run it his way. And so he planned everything down to the last tee, the, 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 the breakfast, lunch, and supper, as well as the artillery and all the rest of it. And he said like this, the whole way of fighting until now has been you have the soldiers charge. Well, then you lose a lot of men. The whole shot of a good general is you don't lose men. So LMI, you have to do in such a way the soldiers don't do the charging. Organize something called tanks, uh, the airplanes, the artillery in a certain way. Make them do the catch the bullets on the front line. And then after you broke through, then the soldiers should run through. I don't know if I made myself clear, but he's the only general who said, let's think about saving lives. You know, when we in a battle, and they let him do it his way, and he won in the Battle of Amiens, very famously. For the first time, they broke the. That was the first British victory of World War One. Isn't that amazing? The British were fighting on the Western Front, 1914, 1915, 1916, 1917. They never won a clear-cut victory once. A few times they they they, they conquered Daladamas of Kharkov, but that's it. Then they lost it. Literally. Nothing. They, they never could win. The best they could do was prevent the Germans from winning. But they couldn't win. And here this Jewish guy busted the German lines, broke through, captured a lot of prisoners. It was a real, actual, tactical victory. Now, General Haig could say, I guess, it's under me, you know, I told you. Wait long enough, we'll break through. Now, as a result, our hero became like a god. Oh my goodness, they never met a victorious British general like this. And the King of England came to unite him on the field. And they gave him all the medals and this and the other. But then he won a couple of other battles. So August, September, October, three, three months of when his army, the army under his command, actually won a series of battles, which really meant the downfall of Germany. Because that meant by the beginning of November, the Germans were ready to give up. So for four... For four years, 
They've been battering away and losing a Velter man. There's nothing to show for it. And then they put this Jewish guy in charge. You know? And he said, I guess, let me, let me, let me organize it my way and we'll do it right. And he did do it right. So it's quite a story. You know what I'm saying? It's quite a story. Now, here's the thing. During these four years, as I said before, every time he wanted a promotion, and he was very ambitious, he always wanted a promotion, or it would be a glory, get his name in the papers, is a Jew. He's pushy. He's trying to claim the credit for himself. This and that and the other. That could have made him try to be more geish than a guy. But what happened was, it brought out his Jewishness. Isn't that interesting? And so, he never went to show, but he said, I guess any soldier in my army gets a kosher food. <laughs> and this year I'm going to go for Yom Kippur services with the army in the field. You know? Which is quite a statement. The commander-in-chief of the army goes for you to, 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 a, to a, a, an orthodox Jewish service. It's the British army, the Australian army. So you have a chapel and he's an orthodox rabbi. You know, in there. Uh, now, it didn't happen because the battle broke up. That would have been a good photo. Uh, the commander-in-chief of the corps, the top general, is going to Davin Kol Nidre. You understand? Or to be more honest, he would have gone for Yisker. But okay, so what? So what? Um, you see what I'm saying? That made him own up to his own Jewishness. Didn't make him from, but up to his own Jewishness. Now, it's also true that nearby was London. So whenever he came back for a few days of you know, rest and relaxation, all oh, the Jewish community went crazy over him. Doesn't get better than that. It's the first world war. The Jews want to show how patriotic they are. Our best general is a Jew. See, he made a Kiddush Hashem in this way. That's the point I want to make. He made an unbelievable Kiddush Hashem in this way. It wasn't a from thing, but he showed the Jew as patriot, as victorious general for England, and for Australia, and that's a fact. And of course, it was a relatively short time, because as soon as November, the Germans gave up, and then the Australian army could go home. His wife, his first wife had cancer. I remember he was involved with some other woman, but his second wife, that woman, Bentwich, his second wife was from what I would say, within the context of the upper class of British Jewry was a Jewish Jew. I don't know if she was from, but her family had come from from, Pentwich. Uh, her father was a big macher, was a from guy in the United Synagogue. I'm talking about the British Orthodox. Shalom Shabbos of a certain type in the Queen Victoria times. I forget his name, Bentwich. And her brother was Norman Bentwich, who was the Attorney General um, under the British Mandate in Palestine. He's the one, together with Ralph Cook, they created the Rabbanu Um uh, So the second wife was, what we say today, more Jewish than the first wife, although they were both halakhically Jewish. And she was a big Zionist. And so when he came back to Australia, he was like a god. And you can just imagine, if you're an Australian Jew, it makes you feel 10 feet tall. I understand exactly. In fact, some guy said, that's in the article, it's from now on, it's impossible to be an anti-Semite in polite company. Because whenever you say to Jews, they say, what a look at Monash. So, this is what I mean when I say Kiddush Hashem. 
This used to be the Kiddush Hashem people thought about long ago, which is if somebody does something that reflects well on the Jewish people, and it certainly did. And when he came back to Australia, he was unbelievably popular. So let's face it, it took one of our guys, an Australian, to win the only British victory. <laughs> Showed the British how to do it. After four years of dissing us, when we got out on our own, had our own court, we beat the Germans. You know what I'm saying? And Monash was a better general than all the British because he actually cared about the men. You know, he had fewer casualties. Get it? He had fewer, much fewer casualties because he cared about that. It just meant you had to meticulously plan every battle down to the last detail and coordinate a lot of stuff. Very hard to do. But I'll tell you again, he was a businessman, he was an engineer. He could do this. This was his fach. And so he was seen as a very great person. When he came back to Australia, for the first time he started going to Shul. It wasn't from, started going to Shul. And became a, a Zionist. And all of a sudden he started caring about what happened to Jews around the world. Now I'm sure his wife had a lot to do with this. And it was just interesting. Because what it meant was, you can be in Australia, and uh, you can be pro Eretz Yisrael, in favor of Zionism, and uh, be the greatest patriot at the same time, because look at Manash. You see? So everything I'm talking about was a big plus for the Jewish situation in Australia, and around the world. Um, I don't know enough about the extremely detailed military studies of the First World War that are coming out now. I know General Montgomery, the famous uh, commander from the Second World War, said, and he fought in the First World War, he said, there's no question Manus was the best general of World War I, on the, certainly on the Allied side, which is quite a statement from Montgomery. It's Pasha. Yeah, you know, was definitely the best general the Allies had in the First World War. Hollow Doverhood. Um... It's interesting that his fame didn't go so far. I, I'm not 100% sure why. It's an interesting phenomenon. But uh, what's really... It was around that time that reform movement started in Australia. And he wrote on a letter, he said like this, if I was younger, I would join your show. Because reform, I like it. It's in English. I like the, the music. You know, all that stuff. And I'm not a fundamentalist, you know, but I'm too old. So I'm just going to live and die as Orthodox, <laughs> basically. Um, there was even a time, 1920s, I don't remember exactly, maybe it was during the Depression, when there were riots. Do you know, a lot of Australians want him to come like a dictator for a while. Because uh, to bring law and order back, I forget what it was, but he said, no, 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 we're going to have law, we're going to have uh, democracy here. You know, so he did the right thing. And he died. Not an old man. He got sick in 1930, 31, whatever. And I don't think he's buried in a Jewish cemetery. But Ezra has a photograph of him. Uh, I see the two pictures of the cemeteries. And it's in Hebrew. You know, to the memory of John Manish. But in the top, Asar Yaakov ben Yehuda, Nifter, so and such and such, and whatever. Uh, so we have... A person, and by the way, he said, you should give to the UJA, they should support Eretz Yisrael, they should fight against anti-Semitism in Europe, you know, 
what would things have been like if he would have lived another 10 years, being in the 1930s and in World War II? It's an interesting speculation. He would have been an old man. Uh, but he was held in the greatest esteem. The greatest esteem. So here you have an unusual Jewish story, which is uh, brilliant but tragic. Because it took the First World War to bring out the Yiddish guy in him. It only could go so far. I mean, he was not a from guy. And when I say not a from guy, he didn't believe really in the Torah and all the rest of it. You know, that's, that's not the generation of that time, the 1870s, 80s. They were skeptics. And at the same time, he definitely had a pintle yid. And maybe somebody could have gotten him. I don't know. There's no question, in other words, that he had the Jewish you know, thing in him. And... Uh, it's, it's, you know, part of the tragedy of modernity that these types of Jews could not be so comfortable in their own skin as they say in America. But he's a guy, at least as I understand it, who became increasingly comfortable in his Jewish skin, although I don't think totally so, even to the end of his life. The effort it takes, or it took in those days, to be a success in general society, demanded that you surrender a Jewish part of you. Some more, some less. It's a shame. But that's what it was. If you want to make it in the outside society, and he did, it has to be at the cost of surrendering a Jewish side. Some more, some less. Uh, he didn't marry out. Uh, he didn't deny he was Jewish. He didn't convert to another religion, you know. Uh, he under he, he was totally in favor. I'm going to tell you something. When the British started to cheat on the Balfour Declaration, he criticized them. He said, "You know, I'm loyal to England, but a promise is a promise." You know, uh, talking about what as far as uh, Palestine and Israel is concerned. See, you have to understand that for people living in that Western type society, to be a Zionist or things like that was an expression of Jewish identity. I don't think the way his life had turned out, he would ever have any interest in from Judaism. It wasn't in the cards. As I said before, that's tragic. But you see that he was looking. At least as, as I read him. Yeah, he was looking. And it is important to make a Kiddush Hashem. Uh, in this way. And it is, it's a very big mitzvah if somebody is able to shine as he did. I mean, he shone very brightly for five minutes to associate your fellow Jews with that shine. You, you understand what I'm saying? To, to use that to help other Yidden. And that he was willing to do. So that's a big mitzvah by itself. So there's all kinds of mitzvahs out there. There's the typical ones that we think about. But they're also the ones of Kali Yisrael. And if he, if the First World War would never have broken out, I think he was going farther and farther to the left, and who knows? You know, he would not have been an admirable person in any way whatsoever. But the crisis of the war and, you know, the, the cataclysmic events sometimes can change a person's life in such a way that you find yourself, you know, heading back towards your Jewishness in ways you wouldn't have expected. 
And, uh, you know, not to be funny about this, if they were out of the Bible at that time, you know, who knows, maybe the guy would have got to him. You never know. Uh, uh, but we never will know. And as I said before, he died fairly young, and he had a huge funeral. And, you know, the, I mean, all the guys, maybe 100,000 people more, you know, it was a crazy number came. And I want you to understand, it was a Jewish funeral because he never left the Orthodox officially. And, you know, it was a, like I said before, I don't understand exactly how the cemetery works, but it looks, I see, is a proudly Jewish business, you know, it's got Hebrew on it and all the rest of it. Um, so, this is the best I can do from a distance. But I'll say it again. I don't think anybody outside of Australia has heard of this guy. And yet I just told you, he's one of the most important generals of the First World War. But I think the World War One in general, most of us don't know anything about. All the war buffs out there are World War Two guys. You know, from the Hitler War. And I understand that. Nothing wrong with that. The First World War is interesting in its own way. I did a video, I did a lecture series a couple of years ago, I don't remember when, when Orthodox Jews in the First World War. That was primarily about the West, the Eastern Front. That's where the Orthodox Jews were. They mostly weren't on the Western Front, but on the, which is the Front, Germany versus France, you know, over there. But there was one big important Jew, and that was General John Monash. And um, he turned out, as I said before, possibly to be the, the, the top general. The but isn't it interesting that the past has just made them all forgotten? Anyway, here's something a little bit different. Once again, I want to thank Judah Tanner speaks very nicely of him. He's a young man in Turo, and he wanted to do this in memory of Gavi Rosenblum. And it speaks very nicely for Judah. Comes from a nice family. And uh, with that, I wish everybody a good week, and I hope that Gavi's Neshama Shalom Aliyah. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.